Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome to Drop Pass Podcast once again, or if it's your first time here, I'm the host Janne Toivonen, and today's main focus will be on the 2023 NHL Entry Draft, if you couldn't pinpoint that already from the headline itself. We ended up witnessing quite uneventful two days of drafting, if I may say so myself, since we didn't end up seeing any trades during the first day, so... After a few quite eventful drafts, we might want to start winding back our expectations a bit, especially regarding trades since pretty much the major ones were orchestrated already before the first name was called, so in a way, we didn't end up seeing as big fireworks as to what could have been expected, but certainly there's been a lot of action in the NHL within the past couple of days, so there's the reason for us to dive a bit deeper into the headlines that have highlighted the front pages within the past few weeks. So that is going to be the coverage for today. Next week, we will focus more on the contract and free agency front. So if you're looking to hear my thoughts on some of the signings that we've seen, you have to wait until next week because we have already enough on our plate as it is. And before we punch out the intro, I would advise you to check out the links in the description because I dedicated almost a few days for the draft coverage and there's still some left to be published. So check out at least the IG page at the drop underscore pass and drop a like if you enjoyed my handcrafted draft and news post. But now, time to crank up the volume so DJ hit the beat without further ado. Let's get go. And just like that, the wheels are off for another week of NHL talk. And just like I said, we will start the episode by going over the major trades that happened within the last couple of days, loosely speaking. And despite the fact that we've already entered the free agency period next week, we will start to unpack that whole pie, plus the extensions that were handed out already prior to the draft day and 1st of July. So the dealing and wheeling officially started back in the beginning of May as we saw the Ivan Provorov and Damon Severson trades, but those we already went over in our last episode. So the first one closer to the draft ended up being a one-for-one trade between the Nashville Predators and the Colorado Avalanche, which honestly was a move that I didn't expect to see with the Preds dealt centerman Ryan Johansson to the Avs in exchange for a journeyman Alex Galchenyuk signing rights. Preds ended up retaining 50% of Johansson's cap hit, so his 8 million deal drops down to 4 for the next two years for the cup-hungry Rockies representatives. And honestly, the only way for the Preds to ditch him elsewhere was by retaining some salary or by adding a broker into the deal, but since Trotz was willing to eat 4 million for the next two years, they got his ass out and can start to focus on better things in the Music City now. But with the first glance, this probably makes you wonder, what the Fs are trying to do by adding a player to their roster who arguably has seen his most productive days in the NHL. But there's a real reason for this addition, at least in my mind. And that is the fact that their prior to see JT Comfer hit the free agency and already signed with another team and would have cost them more than what Johansson will at least cap-wise thanks to his career year 52 points. 
So basically, the Avs just acquired a replacement for Comfort with this move while they try to figure out who is going to step into the second line center role if it doesn't end up being Johansson, who has battled with some injuries throughout the past three years. So, surprising move in my opinion, but not a horrific one by any means since they don't have to take all of the 8 million and they don't have to battle for free agents and can just focus on extending their RFAs and finding a replacement for their captain Landis Cook, who will be out for the upcoming hockey season. For Preds, this is a great move since this deal was almost unmovable, and although they had to retain some dollars, it's still 4 million from their cap space, and now they have more room for their young guns to shine and even replace him with more of a long-term option. The next day, Kings also activated as they made some room to their cap space by trading away their young right-handed defenseman Sean Dursey to Arizona in exchange for Montreal's 2024 second-round pick. Dursey has amended his spot in the NHL through the past couple of seasons and will without a doubt strengthen the Yotes decor, especially now that both Shane Gostisphere and Jacob Chikrin have left the team, and more than likely, he will see a lot more ice time in Arizona if they don't decide to invest during the free agency because currently their blue line is very unproven and young on league-wide standard. With this move, the Kings freed up 1.7 million from their cap space, but more than likely, that wasn't the main point of dealing him away since guys like Jordan Spence and Brent Clark are waiting for the opportunity to break into their blue line. And since they already had Drew Doughty and Matt Roy on the right side, one guy had to go, and in this case, Jersey was the odd man out despite the fact that he played for most of the year on the left side, given the logjam that they were dealing with on the right side. So, all in all, I see this as a win-win trade. I like Dursey's game a lot, and he has improved his numbers year after year, so it's going to be interesting to see what kind of an impact this scenery change will have for the young Canadian blue liner. But then on June 26th, we were hit by another blockbuster-esque deal when the Bruins kept unloading dollars off their books as they sent veteran forward Nick Foligno and a former Hart Trophy winner Taylor Hall to Chicago in exchange for two young RFA defensemen Ian Mitchell and Alec Regula who had failed to make a lasting impression on the Blackhawks' blue line. And honestly... I love this deal for the Hawks since Hall was one of Boston's best players in the playoffs and despite the major downgrade on the points department during the regular season, this is exactly what the team needs when they start to build their number one pick Connor Bedard for his NHL future. Quick, smart and capable offensive threat who has showed his scoring capability alongside less proven and also experienced players throughout his NHL career. Nick Foligno was an add-on and will work as a sort of a cap well for the Blackhawks as they try to fill up their cap space better. Also, you could have worse bottom six options on your forward course, so additional veteran experience is never a bad thing in a young team. For the Bees, this obviously was a significant loss, because like I said, Hall was one of their better forwards during their short playoff push, but this pretty much just meant that they tried to go with Tyler Bertuzzi, who ended up hitting the free agency thanks to their inability to find a way to sign him before he hit the free agent market, so it only kind of worsened the blow for the B-Squad, whose future roster outlook is completely in the wind now. But when it comes to Mitchell and Regula, like I mentioned, they were not able to cement their spots in the Hawks' blue line, which begs the question if that will become any easier in Boston, so 
Despite some prior hype, they haven't quite lived up to expectations, but there's still room for them to grow into NHL-caliber defensemen. And if both of them hit their stride in B-Town, we could end up seeing a great combo of offensive plus defensive defensemen on the NHL level at some point in these two. And even before our next trade happened, the headlines were surrounded by trade speculation, which suggested that three teams were going to be involved in a massive trade involving the Philadelphia Flyers, but eventually, according to rumors, defenseman Tory Krug was the one piece in this deal, which wasn't willing to waive his no-movement clause, and the total trade cake dwindled down to a two-piece trade, which saw centerman Kevin Hayes heading to St. Louis in exchange to just 2024 sixth round pick. And on top of that, the Flyers were even nice enough to eat some of his salaries, so the Blues got the centerman with retained 3.571 million price tag for the next three years. And once again, this move makes a lot of sense, at least to me, since the Blues sold pretty much every piece they could before the deadline day and were missing a second slash third line center for the rest of the season. So, with this move, they've replaced their former captain Ryan O'Reilly and with a reasonable price tag, if I may say so. And I don't know about you, but at least to me, this is a great piece of business for the Blues who are trying to overhaul their core, because even though they lost a lot this year roster-wise, they still have their big guns in Busnevich, Karu, Thomas, Saad and Shen in Missouri, and even added Jacob Vrana and Kasperi Kapanen to their lineup, who showed some promise in their short stints, so... The outlook is slowly starting to look brighter for them, but certainly the question marks on their blue line and blue paint still remain, and I believe that their GM Doug Armstrong is still actively trying to figure out those parts right as we speak. Hayes is coming off of a plus 50-point campaign, so the expectations are set for the upcoming season pretty much so. At least in my mind, these few additions bring some extra interest around the organization, and I believe that they are still going to stay active in the trade market, so we could see even few more moves from them before the actual 23-24 NHL season opens up. So to recap, a fairly decent trade in my opinion, especially when compared to the price they paid for its services. That same day, my Montreal Canadiens activated as well, as they acquired the signing rights of Alex Newhook from Colorado in exchange for a defensive prospect, Gianni Fairbrother, plus the 31st and 37th overall picks in this year's NHL draft. Fairbrother missed the entire 22-23 campaign due to an injury, so there's some doubt attached to his NHL protection, but thanks to his skills that the Avs were willing to take a flyer on him, and even I was fairly high on him when the Habs grabbed him in the third round back in 2019. The Avs ended up trading their second rounder, they got later on, so we will deal with that later on, but when it comes to the return Habs got, I gotta say that I'm pretty stoked since I've been a big fan of Alex Newhook's game ever since he was picked in the first round, so I have pretty high expectations for him for the foreseeable future. And Ken Hughes' recent trade history really makes me wonder if he spends some time playing the NHL video game, because... The way he's been building the team up lately reminds me a lot of my own moves in franchise mode where I hoard draft picks and trade for young high upside players, so I really can't be mad about it and can only hope that these moves pay dividends in the long run. 
And when you see the amount of highly skilled high draft picks the Habs currently possess, you can't but be excited about the team's future since they just locked up their current stars, Suzuki and Caulfield, to team-friendly extensions and have guys like Kirby Doc, Kaden Gooley, Yuri Slavkovsky, Philip Mazar, Sean Farrell, Owen Beck, Riley Kidney, Joshua Waugh, Logan Mayu, and now Alex Newhook on the pipeline, so there's some real promise in this bunch. And despite the fact that this year's draft class was seen as one of the most stacked in the modern NHL history, the probabilities of drafting a Newhook-caliber player were quite slim if he does pan out, so giving up two relatively high picks doesn't hurt me as much, and I can applaud Hughes for executing this move. And when it comes to Avalanche's perspective, while well, they got the late first rounder plus the early second, which they used to their advantage, so you can't be too dramatic about it, but certainly some Avs fans would have loved to see the upside of New Hook in the Mile High City, but the current cap crunch that they are feeling partially forced this move into existence, so Saki got a pretty good haul in this deal, and since the Avs are in win-now mode, Newhook didn't quite fit the timeline due to his inability to take over the second line center or the first line winger spot, which they hope would have happened already last year. So, without a doubt, this departure will sting some longtime Avs fans, but the circumstances were what they are, and they still have to address few big question marks on the roster front. So, expect to see them staying active during the slow days of the NHL calendar. But right after that move had been finalized, the Winnipeg Jets dropped a blockbuster bomb as they sent the third overall pick of the 2016 draft, Pierre-Luc Dubois, to Los Angeles Kings and in exchange acquired two RFA forwards, Gabe Villardi and Rasmus Kupari, in addition to winger Alex Ayafalo and Montreal's 2024 second-round pick. Prior to the trade, the Jets had signed Dubois to an 8-year 8.5 million deal, so essentially this was another sign-and-trade type of deal where the LA Kings beat the Montreal Canadiens, which had been rumored to be the favorite destination for Dubois for a few years now. And with this move, the Jets had finally materialized the retool, and shortly after they freed up more room to their cap space, but more about that in the later episode. But when it comes to LA's acquisition, all I can say is that their center depth is now straight up nasty. With a trio of Anze Kopitar, Philip Deneau, and newly acquired Dubois, so good luck trying to find more balanced center core from the NHL. Dubois, though, has been playing on the wing as well, so we'll see if he ends up playing alongside one of those two defensive catalysts. But without a doubt, big addition to already strong offensive core. They had to let go of three more defensive forwards in Kupari, Ayafalo, and Villardi. And especially in my mind, losing Villardi is the big sting here. But when you get back a player of Dubois' caliber, I wouldn't be too butthurt about it since the guy has pretty much been a consistent 50 to 60 point guy throughout his NHL career. And he's coming off of a career-high 63-point campaign, so the hopes are high in LA without a doubt. To me, he's fairly underrated forward who has size, skill, and power which are needed during the final stretch of the hockey season, and a testament of that is his four-point total from five games that the Jets spent in the postseason this year. He's been left in Austin Matthews' shadow, and clearly his reputation was tarnished before he straight to Winnipeg, 
and it has never been the same since, but I'm really expecting him to keep elevating his game in his new hometown and showing the critics that he's more than just a complimentary second-line center in the NHL. And a sub-80-point campaign wouldn't be out of the question if you would ask my opinion. Jets, on the other hand, as I said, start the retooling process with this move and acquired nice pieces in the trade where Ayafalo is locked up until 2025 with quite a team-friendly 4 million price tag. Whereas both Villardi and Kupari are bound to receive pay raises, but with 14 million to spend, the Jets should be able to lock both of those guys up with relative ease. I personally am a big fan of Villardi, and especially his comeback from a tough lower body injury has been one to watch. And like Dubois, I feel like there's still some room in the tank for improvement, and 41 point total from 63 games only amplifies my words so. If he gets more minutes on the Jets lineup, especially on the power play, we could see him easily reaching 50 dots, and that is just going to be the beginning. Kupari, on the other hand, hasn't quite lived up to expectations point-wise, but his defensive game has come a long way since arriving in North America. And like the two other young names, there's still lots of room for improvement, so we'll see which role he will get once the 2023-2024 season kicks off, but... Another win-win deal in my books, especially when knowing that the Jets were in a tough decision because of Dubois' announcement of not wanting to re-sign in Winnipeg, which led the team's front office in a tough spot. So, when considering the fact that they were really not in a position to negotiate, the trade-off was quite decent. The 27th of June stands as the final day before the annual NHL entry draft and it withheld two trades which were orchestrated by the New Jersey Devils. The first one being the more minor one, including their goaltender Mackenzie Blackwood who was shipped to San Jose in exchange for a 2023 6th round draft pick. And just like I assumed, he was acquired to San Jose to replace James Reimer who ended up testing the free agency and eventually ended in Detroit so Blackwood will be part of their tandem going forward. And just shortly after that, we saw forwards Tyler Toffoli and Yegor Sarangovic changing destinations between Newark and Calgary. So the Devils ended up acquiring winger Tyler Toffoli from the Calgary Flames, who is coming off of a career-high 73-point campaign, and in exchange, ship Russian forward Yegor Sarangovic to Alberta, alongside their 2023 third-round draft selection. So... Obviously, this deal really wasn't ideal in the Flames' perspective, but the mass exodus has forced their hand, where guys like Hannipin, Lindholm, and even Zadorov have now expressed their disinterest to continue the partnership with the organization beyond their current deals. And I fully get that, given their recent history with the franchise, but it makes you wonder what else is tits up there, because they totally revamped their front office and bench, and just recently acquired Huberto, Uyghur, and Kadri, who are players on all counts, so at this point, I'm really starting to question the whole deal, because this kind of exodus just doesn't happen like that, and the funny thing here is that Top Foley hadn't expressed any trade interest prior to the offseason, but since their extension talks hadn't progressed anywhere, he decided that maybe, after all, it was good time to hit the clutch now that his trade value is higher than it has ever been, and he still has some leverage on what he wants to earn on his next deal. So for New Jersey, this is a bargain of a deal. There's no way around it. And although his past year might stay as an anomaly, they still got a proven top six to top nine forward to their roster who has experience from the NHL. 
and who will also replace Sharankovic on the roster, whose minutes have decreased since the 46-point campaign in 2022. So this move only enhances their chances of finding the top spots again next year. And since Toffoli isn't just a one-trick pony, aka only has offensive game, he can be slotted to a middle six role with ease, and he can carry the workload defensively if need be. So, tremendous add from the Devils' perspective. Calgary's point of view, though, isn't as bright and shiny, taking into account all the drama that currently surrounds the organization and the return they got wasn't all that shabby. So, what else can I say then? that the city of Calgary has certainly seen brighter days when it comes to their NHL team. Sharangovich has flashed his talents in Newark and could evolve to a 50-point guy if appointed to a scoring role in their top six, but given his fluctuating performances on the ice, there are some risks attached to it, where he could go to waste on a bottom six role with somewhat inferior defensive game. The third round pick is what it is, and only time will tell how big of a discount the Devils ended up getting, but... It's obvious that the Flames were not in a position to really negotiate, so their new GM's Craig Conroy's hand was forced and he more than likely took the best offer they got, which was, well, less than what they could have hold, but don't be surprised if we end up seeing more parts moving within the next upcoming weeks, because the rumor currently is that there are more than one or two reluctant guys on their lineup who are not seeking to re-sign in Calgary, so... This could be the best time to cash in because at the deadline, the discount could be even bigger and therefore, why stop now when the stove is hot and their top prospects are right at the brink of the NHL door. So we'll see what kind of a flea market we end up seeing on the northern side of the Canada-US border. But then we start to get real close to this week's main attraction, the NHL entry draft, which was held on June 28th. And just before the name calling started on the first day, we ended up seeing two trades that involved established NHL names Ross Colton and a Stanley Cup champion Riley Smith changing zip codes. But for the first time in 16 years, we didn't end up seeing any trades during the first round of the draft, so I really wasn't kidding when I said that this year's NHL draft didn't quite meet the expectations, especially when seeing all the shenanigans that surrounded the event itself. But the first trade that materialized before the name calling started included the Colorado Avalanche, who used the other pick they received in the New Hook trade, more specifically the 37th overall to acquire the Honey Badger himself, Ross Cullen, from Tampa Bay. And if you want to nitpick, it was his RFA signing rights that they acquired, but you get the point. Tampa is currently feeling the cap ceiling over their head and knowing the fact that Colton was more than likely going to ask for a reasonable raise to his previous paycheck, they decided to part ways with him and look for additions from elsewhere. And this allowed the Avs to swoop in and acquire him for a second round pick, which is quite a high price for an unsigned third slash second liner whose career high point total in the NHL is currently 39 from 21-22 NHL campaign. But what brought up his value, though, is more than likely his versatility, where he can play on either wing or even at center. And knowing that the Avs currently have just two serious top nine centers in Nate Dogg and Ryan Johansson, I wonder if he will be their third string center when the puck draws for the 23-24 NHL season. Well, nevertheless, like I mentioned, the Avs receive a very versatile physical energy forward to their lineup who has shown that he has playoff pedigree during their three playoff runs, so he's exactly the type of player I would expect to see in the Avs uniform, and therefore 
I really like this deal because they are currently short on bottom six options. So he will sit very nicely in the equation and could be locked up to a long-term deal with a reasonable price tag on top of all. And like I said, it was quite a high price that the Avalanche ended up paying for him. So the return the Bulls received was more than I could have probably expected. But since the current market for these types of players is quite narrow, it plunged up the price and this is what the apps were willing to pay for possibly a key contributor that will boost their odds for another playoff push. And last but not least, before the draft day, the Vegas Golden Knights winged their sword again and do not take this the wrong way. When they shipped the brand new Stanley Cup champion Riley Smith to Pittsburgh in exchange for a 2024 third round selection. And quite honestly, I was quite surprised when I saw this move because Although I was fully aware of the current cap situation that they are dealing with, I wasn't expecting them to be this quick with their moves, but only a few days later we saw the main reason for this trade, which was the extension handed to Ivan Barbashev, so that kind of snapped me back to reality where I once again remember that they are not afraid to do bold moves and ship original pieces away, and after all, he had just won the most sought-after trophy with the team that drafted him in the expansion draft, so... What else is there to achieve other than maybe running it back with the same team? But since the Knights were over the cap ceiling with Barbashev and few others not signed, they had to act and after all Smith has been highlighted in the trade rumors for almost two years now. And even I probably addressed them at times so he was the most likely candidate to hit the road so once all the dust has settled, the whole move made a lot more sense and more than likely all the cop antics blunted my thinking for a split second and therefore I was a bit shocked to see it happening so fast after the celebrations and all that jazz, but a move that had to be made in order for them to keep battling away for the cup again next year against the big dogs of the NHL. For the Pens, this is kind of a weird move since, like I mentioned in the season recap episode, they were supposed to lose some dead weight from the roster and not to add to it 5 million more knowing that, for example, Mikael Granlund is earning similar salary for two more years. And I'm not saying that Riley is a bad player, quite vice versa. He will bring much-needed two-way prowess to their lineup, but the explanation could be that Dubas had already decided to not try to extend Jason Zucker to Mullen and others, and wanted to settle on the current free agent pool, while trying to work out some deals that could draw in better results, like getting rid of Granny's contract like the rumors have told us in recent weeks. So, while it may make you scratch your head, I believe that that really is the case and he wants to revamp the court to a certain extent. Because we witnessed the deterioration from within in the previous seasons and one of the ways to stop things from escalating any further is by cutting out the loose ends, which is a risky business and takes a lot of guts. So, we'll see what kind of magic Dubas is able to pull out and what kind of pen squad we really end up seeing when the puck drops for the next campaign. So then we head to the second day of drafting and here we start to see teams activating and 10 trades in total went through with shop picks changing destinations through the final six rounds. But we are not going to go into those since none of them included players that would have been tied to this exact draft class. But the first trade on the second day happened between the Chicago Blackhawks who had just had a fantastic first day of drafting plus the New York Islanders who did the smart thing and ditched veteran Josh Bailey's contract to Illinois and packaged it with their 2026 second round draft selection. 
In return, as you can imagine, for taking on 5 million for the next year, they received a warm handshake, aka future consideration. So I have nothing bad to say about this since basically the Blackhawks acquired a future second round pick, which they can use any way they want for nothing. And the caveat to all this is the fact that later on, they ended up buying out Bayless contracts. So he won't even weigh on their cap space. So it's currently all nice and shiny in Chicago, if I dare say so. So finally, Ankalu was bold. Not bold. Well, maybe that as well. To try to start to rework their core, because currently they have way too many snail-esque veterans who lack the speed required in the modern NHL. So the hope is that he continues to shed some of those bad contracts while trying to haul in some speed and goal-scoring prowess. That could make a difference during the next year. And guys like Palmieri and Bajot should be next on the plank with their modified no-movement clauses. But that is a topic for another discussion since we don't know which teams are on those no-trade lists, so we'll just have to wait and see if Lou has prolonged his departure to Riviera this year. But great move for the Oz, in my opinion, as you could probably imagine. Bailey's value has plummeted in the past few years, and there really isn't much that he's been able to carry to their game, so even though a second-round pick is painful to give up, more painful is knowing that you don't have room to maneuver in the offseason and at the deadline, so this marks a good starting point for their organization, and we can only hope that they continue on this path towards more modern NHL outlook during this year's offseason. And the last deal that day concluded between the Edmonton Oilers and the Detroit Red Wings, where the Oilers sent Kyler Yamamoto's 3.1 million deal to Detroit alongside bottom six forward Klim Kostin, and in exchange, received a thank you text from Steve Eiserman. Yes, another future consideration, so nothing real in value. The expectation was that the Oilers were going to buy out Yamamoto themselves if they couldn't have found a place for him elsewhere, and I gotta say that this was another W for Stevie Y, at least in my opinion, since Costin has really grown on me during the last two years, so the real price of this deal for Detroit was the signing rights to the rugged Russian winger. Edmonton was in a situation where they had to get rid of Yamamoto's contract since they didn't have the cap space to sign Evan Bouchard and to also go hard in the free agency. So this move was inevitable, but it has to sting a bit to let go of Costin since he was starting to become one of the more consistent bottom six options for them. And knowing that that exactly has been one of their biggest weaknesses, it must have been a hard decision for their GM Ken Holland, or at least I would hope so. So... Even if Costin wouldn't become anything but a bottom six option for the Wings, I still see this as a win for the squad because he's a prototypical lower line power forward who can chip in offensively from time to time and will bring his physical edge to both in front of the net as well as the corners. So, great move in my opinion from the Wings perspective. And in the base case, he ends up replacing Tyler Bertuzzi if he can find more offense to his game in the Motor City. And the final deal that happened during the second day of drafting once again involved the Chicago Blackhawks, and this time it's going to be a more minor one where the Tampa Bay Lightning sent upcoming free agent and a cup champ Corey Perry to win the city in exchange for Chicago's 2024 seventh round pick. With this, the Blackhawks add another seasoned veteran to their locker room to assist Bedard on his NHL journey, and the other factor here is that they can offer a lucrative deal to the worm himself which he wouldn't get it from anywhere else, given that they still have to fill their cap before the start of the 2024 NHL campaign. 
So another Capwell was added to the roster and we heard after the bolt season was over that they wouldn't re-sign the veteran so at least now they got something in return rather than just letting him walk in the free agency. And also, according to recent rumors, the bolts are still being active on the trade front and for example Zach Bogosian's name has been seen on the trade block so we'll see if another veteran will head out of town before the next season rolls around. But then it was time for the official free agency period and right at the beginning we start seeing more trade action as first the Washington Capitals acquired defenseman Joel Edmondson from the Montreal Canadiens in exchange for Minnesota's 2024 third and their own 2024 seventh round pick. The Habs also ended up retaining 50% of Edmondson's contract so he will arrive to the nation's capital with 1.75 million cap hit for the upcoming season. And just moments later, the New Jersey Devils acquired a replacement for Damon Severson from Dallas as they traded their 2025 fifth round pick to Texas for a right-handed blowliner, Colin Miller, who will become a free agent at the end of next year. He's essentially just a cheaper option with less offensive upside, but since they already have enough offensive firepower on their first two pairings, they just needed to add more defensive mind to their bottom pairing, and Miller fits that description quite perfectly. So not huge ads, but certainly ones that were needed on both blue lines. And the final trade that we currently know of concluded between the Florida Panthers and the San Jose Sharks as the Cup finalists ended up trading to California their speedy winger Anthony Duclair and in exchange received a bottom six forward Steven Lorenz in San Jose's own 2025 fifth round draft pick. And this was essentially just a move that the Cats needed to make in order to free up some cap space for free agent acquisitions. And yes, Lorenz will bring some depth to their bottom six, but compared to Duclair's impact, it's marginal, so there's really no gain there whatsoever. Duclair was highlighted in the trade rumors since he came back to their lineup at the back half of the season, so it wasn't a surprise to see him departing from Sunrise, but this does mean that other guys on their lineup need to step up since he was an impact player for the Cats whenever he brought the puck up the ice on their right wing. It is also going to be interesting to see how well he fits the Sharks lineup and what kind of output we end up seeing since we've seen him struggling to produce on inferior lineups. But if he gets regular power play and top line minutes, I imagine that his production numbers don't end up suffering that much and the Sharks can utilize that to their advantage at the deadline when teams start to look for additional scoring help. But that will pretty much wrap up the trade front and if any other moves come by, I'll be sure to cover them in the upcoming episodes. Now though it's time to start to unpack the draft events which were the top names called during the first day while also covering the storylines and major surprises. That took place within the two days of Prospect Festival. So the official Conor Bedard day was up ahead and as you could imagine the Blackhawks rushed to the stage to grab home the generational talent out of North Vancouver. They get a player that has all the skills to become the next generation superstar and a one who will be battling for the league scoring titles with the other Conor, Mac engaged. And by the way congrats for securing the bag on that front as well but when it comes to Bedard, there just isn't anything that could hold him back from becoming a franchise-changing center we expect him to become. Some want to tell the story that his size will affect his upside, but when you have that kind of a shot, hockey sense and box skills, you can go for a high kiss. He has dominated on every level he has played and registered absolutely mind-boggling numbers throughout his junior career, so 
a home run pick, no doubt about that. And I think we can move to the rest of the picks since there ain't too much to speculate about when it comes to this sniper. Ushad is already high-end NHL caliber. The second overall pick belonged to the Anaheim Ducks, who got bent over by the draft lottery, and their selection surprised some people since instead of drafting the American centerman, they decided to lean on Swedish talent and selected Örebro's mature forward Leo Carlson with their second overall pick. According to some sources, when the Ducks received the second overall selection, their GM Pat Verbeek had made his mind that the selection was going to be Carlson right at that moment due to his strong overall two-way game. And in my mind, if I would have gone with skill, I would have taken Fantilli second overall, but at the end of the day, I would have been happy with either of those two guys since both of them are projected to be elite future number one centers on the NHL level. Carlson could be ready to step into the NHL right out of the gates, but like we've seen through the past couple of years, it might not be the wisest thing to do to rush these players straight into the NHL from the draft. So my expectation is that he will get his team with the NHL team, but will play a full season either overseas or in the AHL. Certainly, if they want to push him to the top level right from the get-go, it is possible, but looking at the current state of their roster and how they've dealt with their top prospects in the past suggests me that he might spend another year outside of the NHL to hone out his game even more for the big league itself. So in short, he's a tremendously skilled forward who has both the scoring knack as well as the skill to find open teammates around the offensive zone. Anywhere Fantilli can challenge the opposing defenders with speed, Carlson does it with his size and puck projection skill, which eventually creates time for other forwards on his line. And for a big sturdy guy, he has above average skating ability in his more build like Alexander Barkov, where you at times don't even notice how fast he is, but I guarantee you that he ain't no slouch on his skates. Emphasis is great defensive game as well, and soft hands, so pretty elite packages arriving in Anaheim without a doubt. And just as expected, the top three was then closed out by the American Adam Fantilli, who took home the Hobie Baker Award this past year, which is awarded to the most valuable player in the NCAA. And he was only the second draft eligible guy to receive the honor since Paul Correa, so Columbus was fairly stoked to see him dropping to third overall, no doubt about it. Like Carlson, Fantilli possesses elite package that doesn't have too many holes that could be exploited, but Compared to Carlson, his bread and butter is the offensive side of the puck where he has elite hands and speed plus terrific hockey IQ that he utilizes to his advantage every time he has the puck. And he also has a big body as well. And with that said, all the guys in the top three could step into the NHL right from the start. So in that sense, there isn't too much separation between the three names. And when it comes to the partnership between the Blue Jackets and Fantilli, this is exactly what the city of Columbus has needed an elite center to play alongside the disher Johnny Gaudreau and the scorer Patrick Line. They really haven't had this kind of a centerman since God knows how long, so this addition will take the team to the next level by itself, and even if it ends up taking a few years, there's no rush since he's a factory-guaranteed superstar who will shine on the highlight reels for years to come. So all in all, no surprises in the top three, maybe other than the draft order, but at least I'm really, really stoked to see these guys in their NHL uniforms in the coming years. Absolute studs, no way around it. 
Moving on to the rest of the top 10, and we quickly start to see some names that were not expected to be this high prior to the draft itself. Sharks at 4 take the safe route and select Will Smith from the US development program, and they as well can be pretty happy about their selection since Smith is an offensive dynamo whose craftiness and goal-scoring ability will be something teams drill for around the league. He was pretty much the last remaining name projected to go in the top four, so the Sharks skipped all the way to the stage to take the right-handed centerman slash winger, who has all the makings of a future top-line elite forward. He was pretty much left in the shadow of the big three despite an amazing year with the USNTDP. So if you are a Sharks fan and don't have lots of knowledge about this guy, I can tell you that you shouldn't be worried since this guy is a stud and will be one of the top point getters in the league sooner than you might actually think. But then we enter the surprise zone and at the fifth spot we find my favorite NHL team to Montreal Canadiens who shocked most of the hockey world by doing the Stevie Y-esque selection with their fifth overall pick. Which ended up being a big right-handed defenseman from Austria, David. Reinbacher. And yes, I was as shocked as you were when they announced the selection and thought like, what the actual fuck are they trying to achieve with this? But after a few minutes of marinating the thought and going through the emotions, I realized that they picked for position rather than the best player available. And yes, that is against most of the advice GMs receive on the first day on the job. And without a doubt, this might come back to haunt them. But after watching more tape of this guy and checking out their prospect pipeline, I'm quite happy with the selection since big right-handed demon are not easy to come by. And you already have an offensive blue line dynamo in Lane Hudson, so this at least fills up a void if nothing else. We saw what happened with Moritz Sider, so there's certainly hope, but... Realistically, I wouldn't expect him to become such a sensation straight out of the gates, if I'm completely honest, but when you look at his stats from the Swiss NL and see that he scored with similar pace to David Jiricek and Simon Nemech during his draft year, it makes you wonder if there, at the end of the day, is something to really lean on. He is close to elite defensively and has good feet under his torso, so that shouldn't be a problem on the NHL either, but Knowing the expectation level of the Habs fans and the gross welcoming he got from some of the fans. If he shows any signs of not panning out, the fans will be right up Kent Hughes' grill, and I'm not exaggerating one bit. So, after my initial shock, I've come to terms with this selection, and honestly, I'm fairly excited to see if he really does pan out the way I hope he does. And unlike many others, I will give him some time since. I've seen how long it might take for defenders to really blossom in the NHL. Case subject, Rasmus Dallin, so... I'm ready for this project to take some time and only hope that he becomes the first pairing defender that not that many people see him actually becoming. And right after him, we saw another quite a big surprise as the Arizona Coyotes walked on stage and took Russian defenseman Dimitri Simashev with their 6th overall selection. He alongside Ryan Bacher were on paper the best shutdown defensemen in the draft class, but it has to be said that the Yotes are swinging for the fences with this pick, to be completely honest. 
He was projected as a late first-rounder, but his huge frame and defensive prowess proved the Yotes front office of his future upside, but certainly there are some holes that need to be filled before we can start the discussion about future top-line shutdown defensemen. First thing that really stands out is his offensive game, or, in better terms, the lack of it. He plunged himself into some KHL action this year, which is always very respectable for an underage prospect, so his defensive game and skating ability were the main reasons for the call-up to one of the top teams in the KHL. And if he keeps developing his game, there really is room for him to become one of the premier top four shutdown options because of his defensive IQ and skating ability, plus the strong breakout passing. So, although some could see these back-to-back picks as reaches, they are certainly justifiable, but time is of the essence here just like I emphasized with our previous pick. But since the blood pressure was already quite high, the Flyers decided to keep the train moving and with their seventh overall selection decided to trust the fate in God's hands as they selected arguably the second most talented kid of the draft class, the guy that many expected to fall outside of the top five because of the current geopolitical state and his personal contract situation. From HK Soji, Russian winger Matvey Michkov. According to Elliot Friedman, Michkov had announced the names of few teams to his agent that he would be willing to be drafted by. In Philly, the surprise of many was found from that list and the Flyers' new GM Daniel Breer decided to pull the lever on him and took the record-breaking Russian talent with their first-round draft pick. There's no doubt about his skill set since already a couple years ago people were speculating about him challenging Bedard for the first overall spot and since we didn't see him on an international ice, some people had already forgotten his name but I can guarantee you that once he makes his jump to North American ice, Kirill Kaprizov's debut is to be expected and that's the pure minimum. He broke Alex Nurovechkin's under-18 point record and has been shattering all kinds of records during his junior career, just like Bedard has, so... You really shouldn't sleep on this guy, and I already pumped his stars a couple years ago when I first started to pay attention to this upcoming draft class. Elite talent with puck skills, skating, goal-scoring prowess, and everything in between, so it's only a matter of time until more people start to pay attention to him. And if you are a frequent listener around here, you should be aware of this guy, so good for you. But as I mentioned, his current contract in the KHL keeps him in Russia until 2026, which makes few people worry about his presence, but good things come to those who wait and feel a fan should be amongst that crowd, because he's going to be an X-factor for years to come. And that's all I have to say about this talented winger. But after that selection, things started to wind back a bit, and with the 8th overall pick, the Washington Capitals grabbed to D.C. one of the guys that rose up the rankings quite a bit from the start, and his name is Ryan Leonard. He's a right-handed shot whose office can be found from in front of the crease and who doesn't shy away from physical action despite not having the prototypical power forward frame, so... I really liked the pick and was expecting him to go even sooner given the speculation around the draft time and his top six upside and right after him, Detroit was on the clock and if you paid any attention to their previous draft track record, it would have been easy to guess that Iserman would have gone with a more surprising bid, but he settled for a safe 
middle-of-the-road guy called Nate Danielson, whose two-way game and overall strong skill set could see him manning their second-slash-third-line center spot in the future behind Dylan Larkin and even the Austrian first-rounder Marco Kasper. He as well is a right-handed shot who plays a safe two-way game but doesn't lack skill and I gotta be honest when I say that I was quite surprised by the projections throughout the year which saw him as a late first-rounder slash early second-rounder because since last year, I've watched his highlights and saw him as a mid-first-round pick given all the tools he possesses plus the mature two-way game that will guarantee him a spot on an NHL lineup in the future. So, it was somewhat of a surprise to see Iserman going with a safer pick with their first selection, but knowing his draft pedigree, we can expect to see Danielson being right at the top of the WHL scoring table once the next season closes down in 2024. And to round out the top 10, the Blues ended up picking Slovakian power forward Dalibor Dvorsky, who belongs to the boom or bust category of this year's draft class. And I might have even over-exaggerated that a bit, since to me he's a lock for at least a middle six future with first line upside, so take it as you want, but his somewhat fluctuating performances ended up pushing him further away from the top five, but thanks to his great showing on the international stage, he didn't end up dropping that much after all, and the Blues can be pretty happy about their first pick in the 2023 NHL entry draft. His size, great shot, and sound two-way game, and on top of that, he wants to drive the play, so with all those tools in his disposal, we can pretty much count on him becoming at least a second-line center for St. Louis a few years down the road. Additionally, he's also one of the younger guys of the draft class, so he even has a small advantage in that aspect, so pretty much his projection is somewhere between an elite first-line two-way center and a reliable second-slash-third-line center, similar to Philip Deneau with scoring upside, so definitely he's one of the players that intrigues me the most out of this class of future NHLers. After the top 10, we find teams such as Vancouver, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, and Nashville making their first picks, but also Arizona, who kept their heads and decided to go bid off the board with another Russian pick. But first, though, the Canucks picked a defenseman, and can you guess from which nation? Yep, exactly. From Sweden, a right-handed shot, Tom Willander, from Regles Jr. program, who has committed to Boston University, so he will be under the watchful eye of their scouts and development team more often than not. He's one of the guys that rose up the ranking the most this year, and like you could expect from a right-handed Swedish blue liner, he's a prototypical modern two-way defenseman who skates well and dishes the puck up the ice with ease, so no surprises there, and if he gets more offense to his game, he could become one of the biggest gems of this draft class compared to where he was initially projected to go ahead of the season. But right after their pick, like I mentioned, the Yotes made another splash as they selected massive truck-like Russian forward Daniel Bud with their 12th overall pick. He has some of the same attributes that last year's Caps pick Ivan Mirosnichenko has, so soft hands inside, solid frame and a terrific shot that will beat NHL goaltenders on a regular basis once he makes the move overseas. But like you could expect, skating is a bit of an issue at least right now, so that needs to come a long way before breaking into the NHL, but otherwise, 
He has all the makings to become a prolific second line option for the Yotes in the best case who shines on the power play and around the crease area, but undoubtedly another reach pick at least in the league wide spectrum. And I feel like there could have been many other names that should have been in his place, but I guess the Yotes preferred size over skill this year, so now they have two big Russians in their prospect pipeline. Then at 13, the Buffalo Sabres made their mark once again by selecting another extremely skilled but undersized forward, Jack Benson from Winnipeg Ice, which was almost written in the script right from the get-go. The Sabres just have the audacity to keep adding skill and upside to their prospect pool, and like many scouts said, Benson was probably top 5 most skilled players in the draft class, but size once again drove down his stock, which ended up being a blessing in disguise for the Buffalo fans. But now that we saw how dominant the more physical teams in the playoffs were, it makes you wonder if teams that chose to draft skill over size end up regretting their decisions. Because that for sure was one of the reasons why he fell outside of the top 10 in this year's draft, so can all those smaller guys they've drafted make an impact on the NHL level, and especially can they become X-Factors once the big boys start to dominate games during the last portion of the hockey season? But like I said, extremely gifted defensive playmaker who will torch the WHL next year, I can promise you that, and by the way, he will also once again suit up with his teammate Matthew Savoie, because he's a Buffalo pick from last year as well, so... Those two pocket rockets are expected to skate on the same line in the NHL level as well at some point. And to round out the top 15, we have Pittsburgh selecting centerman Braden Jaeger with their 14th overall pick, and Nashville taking the freshman Matthew Wood from University of Connecticut with their 15th overall pick. Jaeger is a sound two-way centerman with lethal shot who fell down the draft board a bit since the start of the 2023 campaign. But in the best case, the Penguins just received their next great goal scorer with first to second line upside, whereas the Preds aim to develop Wood to a similar caliber and to work on his skating mechanics before he enters their NHL lineup sometime in the future. He had an underrated NCAA freshman campaign, but so many teams are worried about his skating that they decided to go with other names in the first half, but... If he gets his skating in check and keeps on producing, he could become extremely productive centerman in the NHL level for the Preds for years to come. Moving on to top 20, where we find Calgary, Winnipeg and Seattle for the first time, plus Detroit and Chicago for the second time in the first round. Calgary ended up selecting Slovakian Samuel Honzik from the Vancouver Giants, whose big frame and goal-scoring ability ooze second-line scoring future but injuries and some concerns about his skating have shadowed his future projections, so a project is in the making here. Meanwhile, the Wings decided to trust in the Swedes yet again as they picked the right-handed blue liner from Sheleftel by the name of Axel Sandin Pelika with their 17th overall pick. And as one could already expect, here we have a smooth skating puck-moving defenseman and more than likely, due to his size, he ended up dropping in the rankings, plus due to less than pro-ready defensive game that will need lots of honing out before entering the NHL realm in the future. So, this could go either way. His development somewhat stunts once he hits the North American ice, like it somewhat has with Victor Söderström, Adam Boquist and Eric Brandström. Or, 
He gets past those obstacles and becomes a Gustav Forsling as puck moving defenseman with offensive upside with time. But it has to be said that as of late, those sorts of Swedish blue liners haven't really found their stride in the bright light, so there's some concern here, at least on my part, and that does not take anything away from his skill set, but I'm just more leaning on the probabilities here. But top 4 upside without a doubt, Winnipeg on the other hand with their 18th overall pick selected one of the scout favorites, Colby Barlow, whose drive just screams NHL future, but how far that will take him is a question on its own because many see his ceiling as a second line energy winger with goal scoring ability, where on the other hand, some consider him becoming just a third line penalty killing cannonball who shines in the playoffs with his relentless play style. But regardless, in my opinion, one of the safest picks of the first round, and definitely, he will boost the overall outlook of the Jets' prospect pipeline, so the pick could have been a whole lot worse, to say the least. But, on the other hand, the pick right after it might suggest that the pick could have been a bit better one as well, since the Blackhawks were on the clock once again, and with Bedard already in their back pocket, they kept on piling up names to their pipeline by adding the best skater of this draft class, Oliver Moore, from the U.S. National Development Program. And this more than likely was one of the favorite picks of the prospect community since he's an outstanding forward whose small stature hasn't slowed him down to this point, and therefore many scouts and analysts speak very highly of him and saw him in the top 10 if teams wouldn't have shied away from him because of his smaller size. But once again, smaller stature drove his draft value down, despite his elite skating ability, and the Hawks more than likely thanked the rest of the league for letting him slip in the order, since now they have more on their prospect pool alongside previously mentioned Bedard and such names as Reichel and Korczynski, so the pipeline is starting to fill up quite nicely. And there's even more to come in the coming years, thanks to trades. And the top 20 is finally rounded out by the Seattle Kraken, who ended up taking Zek native Edward Saleh with their first pick of the draft. And I gotta say that this pick has some Yeri College vibes, given his nationality and overall raw but high-end skill set. His level of play fluctuated quite tremendously this year, and that is something to expect from these young players, but when he was on top of his game, he was without a doubt one of the best players of this draft class, if I may say so. So we'll see if he's able to round out his game even more, because if he does, the Kraken will have a gem on their hands who has the skating, the shot, and the box skills to be an impact player on the next level. But then we head back to reach territory where first the Minnesota Wild depended on size once again as they took the freshman Charlie Strammel out of University of Wisconsin. And I get the point why they went with him because he undoubtedly is one of the more mature players of the draft class frame-wise. But he dropped down the draft ranking for a reason and there's still some doubt about his skating when transferring away from collegiate hockey. So... In the worst case, this pick could end up being just a bottom six pick with some offensive upside, but I'm not yet completely willing to throw this pick down the hatch since his team wasn't that good this year, which also translated to his point total, so the next year could be very telling of his future, so we will wait and see how his sophomore season goes with the Badgers. 
following the wild pick, the Flyers were on the board once again and they decided to trust their gut and selected the right-handed blue liner Oliver Bonk with their 22nd overall pick of the draft. Bonk projects as a future top four defenseman who resembles a lot of Jared Spurgeon, where he's mobile shutdown guy who can chip in offensively from time to time and since teams are always looking for those types of demons. This pick could really pay dividends for the Flyers who are currently retooling their pipeline for a future push. He's by no means the flashiest defender on the ice but a responsible one on both ends of the ice and makes the easy and smart plays consistently so. In a way he's easily projectable for NHL hockey and we could see him in the NHL sooner than many might expect, especially when knowing the current state of the Flyers blue line so. Another safer pick of the first round with some decent upside and high floor. Then it was time for the Rangers to jump on the board for the first time and they were happy to select the third guy of the USNTDP trio, Guy Perrault with their 23rd overall pick, who scored on insane pace this year and ended this year by finishing with 53 goals and 79 assists and this way beat Austin Matthews' third highest point total by one point. He played the entire year alongside two other top 10 picks, Will Smith and Ryan Leonard, and that line was more than likely one of the best in the entire USNTDP history, so what actually dropped Perot so low in the rankings compared to the other two names? Well, the obvious answer is how much his scoring was affected by the other two studs and will his numbers translate to NCAA level and even the NHL. Second thing is his skating, which is some room for improvement and those factors alone more than likely shot few teams away from him because the other two names on the list have more well-rounded games that are more easily translatable to higher levels of hockey. He doesn't lack the skills, there's no doubt about that and his linemate Leonard praised him by saying that he's the smartest player in the entire draft class, which is something that you can't teach that easily, but although... I'm quite hyped about the Rangers getting this kind of an offensive juggernaut to their ranks. I also know how well or badly they manage their high-end prospects. So I start to wonder if this becomes another wasted draft pick that will eventually find himself in another organization at some point. Hopefully not though since his skills are undeniable and if he does continue scoring pace in the collegiate level, many teams might regret passing on him when all is said and done so. I have some concerns, but time is yet again the major factor in this case in addition to his ability to improve his skating when entering the tougher levels of hockey. The last two picks in the top 25 belong to the Nashville Predators and the St. Louis Blues. And first, the Preds decided to bolster their blue line pipeline as they selected Tanner Molendijk with their 24th overall pick. And right after, the Blues grabbed home a Swedish centerman Otto Stenberg from Freilunda's prospect pipeline. Molendijk is a guy that has been surfing the first and second round wave throughout the year, but his raw but projectable skills that forced the press to make a move on him before the second day of drafting. He's one of the best skaters of the draft class and can move around the ice with ease, which already makes him an intriguing prospect by itself. And even though he wouldn't pan out to be this 40-50 to 50 point guy in the NHL, he could find his place on a team's second defensive pairing with shutdown duties. So I'm fairly high on this guy and hope that he could find more scoring to his game. 
Stenberg, on the other hand, is kind of a home run pick whose two-way game and maturity made sure that he got picked within the first 32 names. And he as well has been sliding up and down the ranking due to his varying performances. But if scouts tell that this guy will be a captain on the next level someday, you can almost guarantee yourself a lifelong NHL forward who could blossom suddenly and become one of the top point-getters on your team. He has fairly complete game that features great skating ability, good shot and two-way game that are strong building blocks for the future, but consistency has been an issue thus far, but like I've said previously, that is something many of these names have to work on in the next coming years, so I would be shocked if he couldn't find himself from a second-line role on an NHL team's lineup sometime in the future. So in conclusion, pretty much back-to-back safe picks for both the Preds as well as the Blues. And then we head to our final seven names that got to the stage on the first day, and we will start with the Sharks, who selected one of the more divisive names of this year's class, Sniper out of Sudbury Wolves, Quentin Musty. Musty is a pure goal scorer equipped with great playmaking ability, but given some issues with his skating and not so easily translatable play style, scouts have wondered if there's real NHL upside if he can't find a scoring role from the next level straight from the get-go. Additionally, despite having already an HL-ready frame, he isn't the most physical player on the ice, which would carve him even more time, so with all that combined with some engagement and consistency issues, you start to understand why a guy that just put up 78 points in his first season in the OHL fell so low in the overall rankings. So at this point, all I can say is that he possesses all the tools needed for a future NHL power base winger, Will he be able to utilize those is another question and will eventually determine if he has a long career in the NHL or not. And with their first round pick, the Avalanche took hands down one of the best value picks of the first round when they selected Oshawa's centerman Callum Ritchie, who was once considered as a top 10 pick in this year's class, but injury and some consistency issues made him drop in the overall rankings quite a bit. He doesn't really shine on any specific aspect of the game, but his hockey sense and solid two-way game alongside big offensive upside should hand him a long stay in the NHL, at least in a middle six role at minimum. But right after that selection, we more than likely hit the biggest. They selected who? Pick of the draft when the Toronto Maple Leafs took Easton Cowan from London Knights with their 28th pick. He was projected to go relatively early during the second day, but the Leafs front office had decided that an undersized forward with excellent two-way game and motor was not going to be there when they headed to the draft board for the next time, the very next day. Some scouts say that this guy has some real steel value, and they've certainly done their job scouting this guy, but there wasn't just one or two individuals who scratched their heads when this pick was officially announced. But after Toronto's surprise selection, it was once again time for St. Louis to walk on stage and after selecting two forwards with their prior picks, they decided to go with a D-man this time and took the left-handed blue liner Theo Lindstein with their 29th overall selection. Lindstein was one of the more highly touted blue liners before the season started, but he ended up slipping quite a ways eventually due to his quite a one-dimensional and simple game that doesn't necessarily scream top four upside 
He's an excellent skater, just like every prototypical Swedish blue liner, but the next few years will determine if he has a bright top four future in the NHL, or if he fades into the matter like few others have done before him. There's potential there, no doubt about it, but his rawness creates some questions that need to be answered before fully investing in his long-term future across the big pond. And then we hit the final three picks of the first day, and first on the board were the Carolina Hurricanes, who have become notorious within the past few years because of their drafting pedigree. And their this year's first pick pretty much follows the same trend, where they selected centerman Bradley Nadeau with their 30th overall pick from Pentington Bees of the BCHL. We started to see more and more players getting drafted from the BCHL, so although to some it may seem like a reach, I don't think their pick was that far-fetched since. After all, he scored with a ridiculous pace this year and ended the season as a top point getter in the BCHL. And when you watch him play, you notice right away that his offensive toolkit is right up there with some of the top names of the draft class, but once again, smaller frame has dragged him down the draft board. But like many previous Kane's picks, if he ends up lighting up the NCAA in the next upcoming years, we could really be talking about one of the biggest deals of the entire 2023 draft class. Then with the penultimate pick of the first day, the Colorado Avalanche used the pick they got in the Alex Newhook trade to draft a very raw but high-ceiling defenseman out of Russia, Mihail Gulyayev. His offensive upside is one of the highest for any blue liner in the class whose mobility allows him to move around the ice with ease and carry pucks out of the D zone all the way across the offensive blue line. But like with many Russian DM prospects, his defensive game is still very much under construction, so there's still some time before we can expect to see this guy in North America, but if he's able to fix that aspect of his game, this guy has the potential to be the top-producing blue liner in this year's draft class, no doubt. And with the final pick of the first day, the Cup Jams Vegas Golden Knights stepped onto the stage and selected a guy that slowly climbed the draft board this year, and his name is David Edstrom. Edstrom possesses an NHL-caliber frame already at a young age and is one of the more pro-ready players defensively, but... His limited offensive showings create doubt about his future NHL upside, but for a 17-year-old, four points in 11 SHL games is something that can't be just glanced over, so if he ends up finding defensive spark within the next few years, he could easily become one of the more complete NHL packages available. And with that, the first day was over, and now that we've gone through the entire first round, I will just give my two cents on the possible steel candidates of the later round, since pretty much the deal here was that instead of just the first and second round, many considered this first round lasting until the midpoint of the second round, given the small margins between players and the overall high quality of eligible players this year. So right at the beginning of the second day, we ended up finally seeing Gavin Brindley being taken by the Columbus Blue Jackets, who couldn't just keep by the fact that they could get their hands on Fantilli's teammate as well. So the undersized skill ball was headed to Ohio early during the second day. He's undoubtedly one of the most gifted defensive talents of the draft class, but surprise, surprise, smaller frame gets you to slip down the rankings because, well, reasons so the Blue Jackets should be pretty stoked about these two Michigan reps. Lots and lots of steel potential here. 
Chicago was the first team to draft a goalie this year as they selected the U-20 sensation Adam Jayan to their pipeline with their second round selection. And I have nothing bad to say about the following picks either since first the San Jose Sharks took the Finnish winger Kasper Haltunen with their 36th overall pick. And right after Tampa selected Ethan Gaucher who was projected to go late in the first round but ended up dropping to the start of the second day. Arizona then took a bit safer pick with their first second round choice as they selected top-ranked goalie Michael Rabal out of Omaha at the start of the second round. And as we know, goalies are weird with their development, but in the best case, they now have their big starting goalie in the pipeline. And then at 40th overall, the Capitals laughed their way to the stage and selected one of the highest scorers of this year's WHL season. Andrew Crystal, who could end up being one of the best value picks of this year's draft class. He's an offensive dynamo whose offensive skill set oozes top six potential, but if the defensive game and some questions related to his skating made him drop in this year's draft quite a ways, given that he was projected to go somewhere between the 15 to 25 range before the draft. Detroit then also took a goaltender Trey Augustine with their first second round selection and followed it by taking home physical two-way defenseman Andrew Gibson with their following pick. Buffalo as well selected right-handed blue liner with their 45th overall pick as they called Maxim Sturback's name and I also like the mid-second round picks from Seattle. Oscar Fisker, Mulgaard and Lucas Dragicevic plus Calgary's DN selection Etienne Moran without forgetting the final two picks of the second round. First, Florida took Seattle's crafty centerman Grayson Sargent, and right after, Minnesota picked Riley Heed with the final pick of the second round, who had been first-round talent until the first day of drafting. So those names jumped out to me when looking at the second-round draft board, but more than likely a few more names will jump out once I dive more into these guys during the offseason. And when it comes to the later rounds of the draft, the biggest names that in my mind have the most boom potential are first and foremost Jaden Perron, 84th overall pick by, unsurprisingly, the Carolina Hurricanes. The guy is a wizard with the puck and was projected to be a first slash early second rounder. William Whitelaw, extremely hardworking and skilled forward, was the 66th overall pick by the Columbus Blue Jackets. So they certainly had success at the draft table, at least on paper. And after him, Chicago selected pure goal scorer Nick Lardis from Hamilton Bulldogs and Noah Dower-Nielsen ended up joining his brother in Detroit and was a decent value pick in the third round. LA 78 pick Cohen Zimmer is another polarizing name who has the upside to be a prolific NHL scorer but like many others mentioned before him, is shadowed by some skating concerns plus consistency issues so It wasn't surprising to see him dropping on the draft board that day. Seattle's 84th big defenseman Caden Price has some NHL upside to him, and same goes with more raw prospect Gavin McCarthy, who was selected by the Buffalo Sabres as the 86th pick of the draft. And with that, we are pretty much done with the third round overall. In the fourth round, names that really caught my eye were defenseman Luca Cagnoni, who was selected 123rd overall by the Sharks and brings me some Riker Evans vibes. Luca Pinelli, the brother of King's draft pick Francesco Pinelli, is more of a safe pick in the mid-rounds by Columbus, while Phyllis 120th pick Alex Chernik ended up slipping way more than expected but possesses some long-term upside that could come in handy for a franchise that is not looking to compete for the Cup in the very near future.
And the final name from the fourth round that piqued my interest was Russian winger Alexander Rukov, whose relentless two-way four-checking game is somewhat unorthodox for modern Russian forwards. Winnipeg snagged home a valley pick from the fifth round as they hauled in Seattle's goalie prospect Thomas Milic, while Capitals took home a defenseman Cam Allen with their fifth round pick, who was one of the top blue liners in the draft class ahead of this year's campaign. Carolina then took a flyer on a skilled but raw Russian prospect Timur Mukhanov with their sixth round selection, while Seattle drafted themselves an undersized two-way center Seb Fiersval in the second to last round of name calling. Also, I'd like to mention that Emily Arventia, who was early on seen as a home run first round talent, ended up dropping all the way to the seventh round, so we'll see what his future will hold, but those are the sleeper picks that jump out to me with the first class, but like I said, there will more than likely be a few more names that will rise up from the crop once I start to dive deeper into this year's pool of draft prospects. So with all that said, we have finally arrived to the final stop of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me, and if you are still here, you have earned some stick taps, because this has been by far one of the longest episodes to date, so I really really appreciate you being here. Next week, as I said, we will start to go over the contract and free agent front since we saw an electric start to the free agency, so there's a reason to conclude all the moves that went down and will go down before we meet again next week. But that's all for this week. Check out the episode description. There you will find my social media links as well as the discount info for our show's sponsor. Thank you so much for joining me. I wish you a fantastic rest of the week. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Until next time. Over.